Dr. Matthew Tucker. While Dr. Tucker is uh, coming to the uh, stand to testify, I just have two quick announcements. One is that there is a pad of paper at the back of the room for those who uh, wish to write out a question, which can be brought up to the commissioners at the end of the testimony. That last one was a doozy, and it got a very interesting answer. Uh, David is waving the, clip the clipboard around there. And the other thing is, uh, given time constraints again, uh, although I'm sure we, we are all willing to sacrifice par part of lunch hour for the sake of having heard Dr. Braden out, and so uh, we'd ask that lunch be shortened to 30 minutes. So do you uh, affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Can you tell us your full name, where you're from, and your occupation? My name is Dr. Matthew Tucker. I'm a family and emergency medicine doctor in the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia. And Dr. Tucker, can you please give us a bit of a background with regard to your work experience? <clears throat> I was in the Canadian Armed Forces for 21 years, including almost 10 of those years as a doctor. During most of that time as a doctor, I also worked regular shifts at my local emergency departments in three different provinces. So you were in the military for 20 years, uh, 10 of which you worked as a doctor, and then you, are you now working for the military? Yes, as a civilian physician, yes. As a civilian physician? Yes. And have you recently also been working in an emergency room? Um, I was during most of the pandemic. Uh, I took a break beginning in uh, 2021. And please note Dr. Tucker's CV is exhibit TR13. What is it like working as a military physician? It's great. <laughs> um, I hope it doesn't sound overly sentimental if I say I love the men and women in the Canadian Armed Forces. I have a very high opinion of them. Uh, essentially what we do is we do family medicine in a military clinic on a military base. Uh, a little bit of what we call occupational medicine as well. It's very interesting. And who exactly are your patients? Is it strictly military personnel or families as well? In Canada, it's strictly military personnel. That's quite a large question, actually, probably beyond, probably beyond the scope of this thing. Uh, in other militaries and other countries, the doctors do, do look after the families, and I, I wish we did, but we don't. Over the past couple of years, have you noticed any concerning trends in uh, your patients' cases? Well, I think so. <clears throat> I had a conversation, actually two conversations, two different people I asked this question recently. You know, hall hallway kind of conversations, you know, at the place where I work. And I said, is it just me? Or is it all we do these days, mental health things? And uh, are people, is people's mental health worse than ever? And both of these people said, it's not just you. It's, uh, they see the same thing. And so in my opinion, this is very subjective. I don't have statistics at hand, but it's my opinion that there's been a mental health crisis where I work for the past couple of years. So you've seen an increase in the last couple of years compared to your prior nine or so years experience? I think so. And do your, how many doctors work in your clinic right now? Uh, not that many. Um, there's doctors and nurse practitioners, so maybe six clinicians in total. 
And do you regularly sort of meet to discuss cases? Yeah. Or, and do you notice a trend in there? I think so. Uh, and the cases arising for them as well. I, I mean, let's be clear here. It's not that mental health issues are, are new in the military. Military life has always been stressful for people. Uh, but I think it's been a significant theme in the past couple of years. Do you have any theories as to why you and your colleagues at the military are seeing this increase in mental health issues? Well, I do think that a lot of it has to do with the stresses of the COVID restrictions over the past couple of years. <clears throat> Let me, can I tell you guys a story, a personal story? It's a, it's a true story. Uh, when I was a brand new doctor, this was on a military base in Ontario, and my wife and I were shopping for our first house. And we settled on a house, and uh, our realtor turned to us and said to my wife, she said, this is a good choice, this is a good neighborhood for you because, because I'm gonna be away a lot. And I don't know why I didn't believe her. But at the end of four years, when we were leaving that place, uh, I had been away from home for 11 months. So these are the sorts of stresses that military people deal with. I think that every Canadian has had a lot of stress over the past couple of years. Uh, most people report that they were affected by the COVID measures in some way. But I think that military people have particular stresses that affect them particularly, like having to go away frequently, like having to move around. And I think that the COVID restrictions were particularly hard during times like that. And I think this, I think this was a trigger for a lot of anxiety, um, anxiety and depression. So the standard COVID measures that applied to everyone would, would have particular unique sort of impacts on those who are used to being traveling and being away from family and the I way that so. the military. I think so. And can you elaborate a bit on the type of symptoms that patients present with when they have these mental health issues? Yeah, thanks for asking that, actually. Uh, I'm sort of passionate about that question because I think that a lot of people, non-medical people, I think they don't know what the symptoms of depression are. So, of course, the classic, the obvious symptom of, of depression is, is low mood. But there's quite a number of other symptoms that go along with depression and anxiety. Things like not sleeping, not eating, low energy, not doing anything for fun anymore, feeling bad about things that perhaps aren't reasonable. And so I've seen a lot of this lately. You know, people, people afraid to, to go out in public, afraid to go to work because they're anxious. I've seen a lot of it lately. Have any of the patients you've seen commented on the link to sort of the COVID restrictions or the, the impact of those, the COVID measures? Yes. Certainly, I've heard that sort of mentioned in passing by patients a number of times. Uh, I heard it explicitly recently because I asked one of them. I, told, I, I said to him, I said, hey, I've seen this person who I've gotten to know as a patient over the past year or so, a person with significant anxiety. And I said to this person, I said, hey, listen, listen, man, I just want to ask you something. You know, this might seem like a random weird, weird question, but can, can I just ask you this? I said, do you think that you had trouble with the, the COVID restrictions, and his face lit up. And he said, yes, that's when all this started. He said, I was on a military base where I wasn't allowed to go anywhere. My family wasn't allowed to come visit me because of the travel restrictions. So we had kids at home. Uh, we had no family support because my extended family is from out here and we were on this base out here. 
we had an erratic sort of work schedule where it was ever evolving. That was very stressful. So I think definitely, yes, these sorts of things were um, very stressful on our people. Were there aspects of the military, were there certain measures in the military or unique kind of features of, of the military that would create sort of impacts on military members, sort of things that in the way the military operates, um, they would have specific measures that wouldn't affect other Canadians? Well, I think I already mentioned those, the, the um, frequent travel. Uh, so imagine the stress not only on military members when they have to travel frequently, they have to um, self-isolate uh, frequently before they travel anywhere. Um, they're worried about their families who are stuck at home with no, um, with no support because of travel restrictions. Um, yeah. With COVID measures reduced now, have you seen a decrease again in mental health issues? Well, I think that's a hard question to answer. I think on the one hand, Yes, many people are, are doing better now. Although I would say that I think many of those people are probably the people who would not have come to see me to begin with. I am still aware of a number of people who I would say the COVID measures, the COVID stresses were probably the straw that broke the camel's back for these people. And they have not really gotten better, even though uh, the world may be returning to normal-ish. Is it your observation with anxiety and depression that e even if it's caused by s social determinants or external factors, that once it sort of takes takes hold, that it can be hard to treat even if those factors are... Th that can happen. Now, now, frequently, it does get better. You know, in, in medical parlance, we have this term called social determinants of health. Uh, and if you ameliorate the social determinants of health. It is true that people frequently get better, but everybody's different and it can be hit or miss. As someone who spent 20 years in the military, um, can you speak to how a rise in mental health issues and anxiety and depression among military personnel could have an impact on day-to-day -day military operations? Well, I, I think that's a fairly self-evident no-brainer. I mean, if people are, if people are sick, uh, they can't go to work, they can't perform their jobs, it's going to, uh, it's going to affect the, the ability to, to carry out a mission successfully. And, you, I, and, and, and I'll tell you something, part of the reason that I'm passionate about this, part of the reason that I'm passionate about our people's health is that, it's not, it's not a secret when I tell you this, that uh, the military has a personnel crisis, crisis right now. Uh, a lot of people are leaving. Uh, a lot of people have left. A lot of people are very sick. Um, and I think it's a fairly self-evident no-brainer that that is a, I guess you could say, uh, it, it affects the, the security of the country if, uh, if people are too sick to perform the mission. So you are seeing people leave due to those reasons, the mental health issues? Yeah, I think so. So Dr. Tucker, during the pandemic, up until late 2021, you were also working part-time at the local emergency room in Annapolis Valley, correct? Yes, ma'am. And this was not associated with your military practice, correct? Correct. So at that time, uh, 
And of course, you weren't there as long into the pandemic, so it's hard to compare. But did you also see a trend in um, rising anxiety and depression? I think so. When people come to the emergency department with mental health issues, it typically presents a little bit differently than it does at a, at a family medicine or primary care clinic. I find that typically what will happen is you'll pick up a chart and the, and the triage notes will say that the person is there for something like situational crisis or mental health crisis. And so what will happen is you'll go see them and you talk to them and it, and it becomes clear that they're suffering from anxiety or, or depression, uh, stress uh, from you know whatever's going on in their life. And so during the COVID period, yes, I, I do think there was a, a certain amount of that. I do remember seeing several patients at the emergency department who I'd go see and you know the, the triage notes said they were there for situational crisis or mental health crisis or whatever. And I'd go see them and it became clear that these people were just, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't make it work anymore because, um, you know, maybe the measures were affecting their job. Uh, you know, there was financial concerns. Maybe they, uh, maybe their families weren't able to come visit them to help with their little kids or, or whatever. This was in the, this was in the general public as well as, I mean, of course, the emergency department serves the general public. Although I will tell you something else, uh, going back to the question about the military families, uh, in case you don't know this, every community hospital that's close to a military base looks after military families all the time. And the reason for that is because these people move around all the time and so they don't have doctors. And so they, they go to their local hospital all the time. And I'm gonna tell you something else. M military spouses basically deserve a medal for what they, for what they deal with, okay? You know, there's military medals. I think, I think there should be a spousal medal for what they have to deal with. Uh, they put up with so much when their spouses are away. Imagine, imagine this. Can you imagine this? Imagine that you're a military spouse, okay? And you get uprooted from the place where you're from. Your spouse is stationed at a, at a military base that's far away from where you're from. So you have to move to this place where you don't know anybody and you've never been and it's 2,000 kilometers, several provinces away from your extended family. <clears throat> and you don't know anybody, so you depend upon things like activities, you know, clubs, peer networks, um, your, you know, your, your kids' school, um, you know, churches, whatever. And then imagine that all these things are shut down and you have nobody, you have nothing. And, you, and because of interprovincial travel restrictions, your extended family is not able to come and look after you. So I would also see those people at the hospital a couple of times. And you would see the mental health impact yeah. in some of those patients. Yeah. Going back to the beginning of the pandemic, working in an emergency room, can you tell us a bit about what that was like circa February 2020? It's a very interesting question because, you know, we did a, everybody knew that this COVID thing was coming. And at the beginning, doctors, I think, didn't really know what it was, didn't know what to expect, didn't know what kind of symptoms to expect. And so at my hospital, what they did was they decided to organize some practice sessions, which was always a good idea. Uh, they organized some practice sessions on how to deal with a respiratory emergency. So I went down to the hospital a couple of times. We did a couple of practice sessions about how to deal with a respiratory emergency where we would, you know, we have a mock patient and I would 
participate in the team, and there would be your nursing team, and we did a practice scenario or two, okay? And we felt great about it. We thought, this is great. We're all practiced up. We've got our skills all practiced up. We can save people's lives if they come in. It's great. <clears throat> and you know what happened? Nothing. The patients never showed up. So I'm going to say this, and people, especially people in other parts of the country or other, people, or other parts of the world, they may have trouble believing this, or they, they may think that I'm misspeaking. I'm not misspeaking when I say I worked regularly in the emergency department once or twice a week throughout 2020, throughout 2021, and I never met a single COVID patient until January of 2022. So no flood of COVID patients. No. Yeah. Dr. And, and the, only reason I met, the only reason I met them then in January of 2022 was because at Christmas time uh, in 2021, the military people were finally allowed to go home for Christmas, and so they came back with it. Dr. Tucker, why did you feel that you wanted to come and speak here today at the National Citizens Inquiry? Well, I was asked if I would, and I thought to myself, I feel like there are a number of stories from Canadians that haven't been heard or are not being heard, still not being heard. I think that everybody deserves to have a voice in the national conversation, and I thought that maybe I could shed some light on some voices that haven't been heard just with, just with a view towards improving our healthcare system and improving the lives of the people that I care about. Thank you very much. I'll turn it over to the commission if you have any questions. So, so thank you very much for your, for your testimony. Uh, my first question would have to do with the um, condition of the family around the military yes um, how how extensive could be the isolation based on assignment when they move from one location to the other and in other words do they have the time to build a social network or are they move constantly so they have to rebuild it all the time it's a very good question uh, it, I could answer it at, at length there's multiple components to that question the short answer is that it depends, okay? Sometimes people stay in the same area at the same military base for 10, 15 years. That's more common than it used to be. It's more common on certain bases. Sometimes people move around every two or three years. So it all depends. And I will tell you this though, based on my experience, this is my experience in, in being fluent with this, this, this culture. People usually say, as a general rule that in the military when you get stationed, it takes sort of a year just to get your feet under you with understanding what the amenities are in the local area. It probably takes two or three years to really start building relationships with other people uh, to the point where you feel comfortable there. And so absolutely that can be very difficult on families. And in particular, a lot of our military bases are, are located in, in um, smaller rural areas where that might be even harder for people. And so going back to the COVID stuff, um, you know, if, if stuff is shut down, um, 
a lot of these military families, and I, I said spouses before, but it's also the kids. It's also, also the kids. Um, it's very hard on them. I have another question with respect to the mental, mental health issue. I know it's kind of difficult to define because it could have many different components. Mm -hmm. um, I know that you're not, in theory, in contact with families or the kids and so on, but have you noticed or have you heard of special condition affecting the kids also uh, of the military in the um, because of the isolation and travel restriction, was there something and all of the other conditions that the kids were submitted to because yes, of the yes. lockdown? Yes, I, I think I said that when I was talking about um, seeing these families at the emergency department, I think I said spouses, but it, but it's kids too. Um, you know, kids will typically uh, present in a different way. You know, it may say, uh, you know, behavioral issues, um, but that can encompass a variety of things. Um, you know, whether it's childhood anxiety, depression, ADHD that's not been properly diagnosed. I, I'm going to ask a sort of broad question. Knowing what you know now from the experience of what happened over the past three years, uh, what would you recommend we should have done differently with respect to managing this whole health crisis? I know it's a broad question, but... It's a broad question. I'm not sure it's my place to answer that question. Um, you know, I, I sort of felt like I came here to tell you what, what I've seen. I'm not sure it's my place to, I, I don't have all the information to answer the question. But I think my best answer to that maybe would be, I think the biggest recommendation that I would have made would have been to say, I would have liked to have seen everybody listened to. Thank you. Good morning. I would just like to kind of further the comment that you made about um, you alluded to the military personnel being in somewhat of a crisis in terms of, I guess, recruitment and retention, possibly. Yes. yes. So we know across the country there's been a lot of um, connections with, you know, this People are stepping back, this quiet quitting. And as a doctor who would be seeing all of this and wondering as well, I'm just, from my perspective, I'd like to know, is there a way to counter the quiet quitting, this stepping back from working, being part of the community, volunteering? Do you have any kind of tidbits that would help people to, to step out from their homes and not be so fearful? Just from your perspective as a doctor. Can you elaborate on the question a little bit? Like um, how to counter? How to counter, you know, we have this quiet quitting movement. There's a lot of employers who can't find employees. There's uh, a lot of charities now who don't have volunteers. And it seems to be increasing this, they call it the quiet quitting movement. And it seems to be increasing in not just pockets of the country that had very tight restrictions, but it's spreading across the country, even to those provinces that didn't have as quite, uh, the restrictions were less than maybe the Atlantic region. And I'm just wondering if you have any counsel from a physician's perspective of how we can counter 
that movement and say that your place, you have a purpose in this world, you have a place that's important, the social fabric is dependent on people being participants. Is there some way that you can add to that conversation that might actually encourage people who may be watching from online or in here that they could say, you know, I have been moving outside of the social fabric. Is there a way that I can participate, that I should be participating, and maybe encourage those people who are listening, particularly online, because all of you did show up. Mm. But, you know, just to try to encourage people to move forward and maybe counter what seems to be happening and may increase and actually seriously disintegrate our social fabric. Thank you. Okay. I think that's a big question. And I think you already answered some of it yourself. I think the very short answer to a very big question would be you have to find a way to re-engage people with society. Uh, I think there would have to be a, a re-emergence of social cohesion, um, shared, shared value, shared purpose. Um, I suppose that efforts that would help you know, build communities and, and bring people together uh, would, would be the start to that. Thank you. I have a number of questions myself, and there's uh, two questions from the audience. Yes, sir. But first, before I start that, I want to thank you for your service, 20 years of service to our country. So you were with uh, Canadian Armed Forces for 20 years? Yes, sir. Would you say that the Canadian Armed Forces is effective at evaluating risk and solutions to unusual problems? In general, yes. I mean, I mean, listen, I, to a certain extent, that's not my place to comment on. No. Please. I mean, the people who make um, these assessments, they, they would rely on a, a variety of metrics that I don't have access to. But um, I, I think in general, yes, that's part of what they do. That's part of what they do. Um, you also mentioned that in 2020, when the uh, pandemic was first announced, there was uncertainty, in, at least in your medical community, about what it, what it entailed and, and, and what it might mean. And you did some tests, some, some practice runs to see how you might handle that. That's right. How far into the pandemic was it before you or your colleagues began to understand that COVID was age um, was affected by the age. In other words, uh, the risk to an 85-year-old might be less than the risk to a 19-year-old. How long did it take to realize that? I would say, I mean, I don't remember for sure. A lot of stuff has happened in the past couple of years. Sure. But um, I would say, you know, probably later in 2020, that started to dawn on us. But, but I mean, it's, it was hard for us to, to realize that where I work because we didn't see any of it. Right, right. But, but even where you were and you didn't see it, I guess with what was you were hearing in the, in the press and what you were talking to your colleagues about, they were starting to understand that it was related to, or it was vastly related to age or it was... Yeah, I would, I would say sort of later in 2020 that that started to become clear. When did the Canadian Armed Forces require or mandate vaccines for members? 
in the fall of 2021. So in the fall of 2021, how many 85-year-old members are there in the Canadian Armed Forces that you're aware of? So listen, they keep increasing the age where you're allowed to stay, uh, but it's not to 85 yet. Being an organization that's part of their task, and they do it very well, in my opinion, is to assess risk, understand unusual situations, and respond in an appropriate way. And if the information seemed to be available in 2020 and they didn't have members who were in that age group, do you have any idea why they would have mandated the unknown vaccine? I can't answer that question. That's way beyond my pay grade. Okay. I have two questions that were submitted by the, by the audience. First one is, and this might be a difficult one too, Knowing that we understand this, this is from this is a commentary following the witness that was on prior to you, Dr. Braden. Okay. Knowing that we understand the spike protein does cross the blood brain barrier, is it possible or should we be wondering if this may also be contributing to the increased incidence of anxiety and depression? I mean, my short answer to that is maybe. Okay. I, I mean, like any number of things, I think it requires more study. Okay. The, the last question is, with regard to um, uh, military members who for either medical or religious reasons requested exemptions, exemptions from the vaccine mandates, how was this contributed? Uh, sorry. Uh, let me start that again. With regard to military members who, for either medical or religious reasons, requested an exemption from the vaccine mandate, and I guess weren't uh, provided with one, how, could the, how would that have contributed to their increased stress levels? Well, it increased it. I mean, I certainly, I mean, I, if, you're, if you want to know, I certainly saw that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Can, can I just say one more thing? Are we done? Okay. Can I say one more thing? I feel very strongly about this. <clears throat> I know the inquiry heard yesterday uh, from some people who have been through some things that have led them to have had bad experiences with the medical system. Can I just say, for the record, to those people or to anybody else who <clears throat> may benefit from hearing this, that I don't think it's ever appropriate in any medical context <clears throat> for anybody to be belittled or laughed at, or made fun of, or dehumanized <clears throat> for their personal medical choices, or for their anxieties and concerns about what's going on with them. That's never appropriate. Everybody always deserves to be treated professionally and empathetically. And to those people who have had that experience, I just want to say I'm sorry to hear that you had to deal with that. I would never treat you that way. That's it. Thank you, Dr. Tucker.